You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the Associate Pastor for Christian Education. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you and what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of John. It is generally agreed that at this particular chapter, chapter 21, serves as a sort of epilogue to the Gospel. It is one last but very important story of Jesus. The chapter just before, chapter 20, is a busy one, in which we read about Jesus' resurrection, about the time he appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden, the disciples, and at last to Thomas. If the gospel ended with chapter 20, we would think it a fine conclusion. But John 21 comes right on its tails and describes a scene so powerful it begs to be told. Let's look together at John 21, beginning with verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He called out to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard the boat and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's something comforting in muscle memory. The call and response we just joined in, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, comes so naturally to many of us. There's certain things our bodies just know how to do, things we can do without thinking about it. My mom tells me that when my grandmother was dying, she would lie in her hospital bed and pick at threads and sewing needles that weren't there. Even in her foggy unconsciousness, she still felt like there was work to be done. She'd sewed her whole life. That's what her body just knew how to do. My dad used to tell the story about our grandfather when he was sick many years ago. In the hospital where they did not allow smoking, he would hold on to his invisible cigarette and flick it across the room. My mom's body knows the rhythm of sewing. Like her mother before her, she can turn corners, remove pins, and snip threads without thinking about it. With my husband, Chris, it's playing the guitar. Whenever we're at home together and there's a quiet moment, Chris grabs an instrument. If we're watching TV, particularly during those suspenseful mystery scenes, he starts finger-picking the guitar. He doesn't even realize he's doing it sometimes. And as endearing as it might be during other moments of the day, right in the middle of a suspenseful, dramatic, masterpiece theater moment, I could think of another word besides endearing. (laughs) And I'm not sure if this counts as muscle memory, but whenever I'm on the phone, I can't sit still. I shuffle and reorganize papers on my desk, or if I'm out in the yard at home, I weed while I'm talking. I'm definitely not thinking about the work I'm doing, It's just something my body does while my mind is on something more important. That must have been why the disciples were fishing. It's just weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection. It hardly seems like the time to go out fishing all night. But if you've ever experienced any kind of major change in your life, then you know how comforting it can feel to go back to what you know, especially what your body knows. Sometimes the most comforting thing you can do is find something familiar. Many of the disciples had been fishermen. The Gospels give us story after story that take place on boats or along the seashore. Peter says he's going to go fishing. The others say they will join him. How many times had they rowed out into deep water together? How many times had their hands and their arms and their backs felt the rhythm of casting and hauling their nets back in? More than they could count. More than they could remember. Cast after cast that night, their nets came back empty. Perhaps they were disappointed, but I imagine their minds were tied up on something more important. Just after daybreak, the gospel tells us Jesus stood on the shore. They did not recognize him at first. When he called out to them to cast again on the other side of the boat, they did what he told them, and their nets were filled. And one of the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Peter didn't hesitate. He threw on some clothes, John said, because he was naked. 
I don't know if it's a good idea or if it's a safe idea to go fishing naked. But he dove into the water with his clothes on. He loses his mind in the most holy way possible. Peter must have felt the strangest mix of emotion. Just a week before, they were all heartbroken at Jesus' death and then astonished at his resurrection. But Simon Peter, Peter the Rock, had been the one to deny Jesus three times in the courtyard the night of his arrest. He must have felt the weight of that night, the weight of his words. And yet when he hears that it is Jesus standing on the shore, he lets nothing stand in his way. The other disciples are not far behind him, and there on the shore with Jesus, they share a meal. Now nothing is more serious to Jesus than a meal shared with others. In all the stories we read about Jesus, any time he eats, he eats with others. We hear that he sometimes travels alone, rests alone, even goes off to pray alone. But we never hear that he eats alone. Of course it happened. It must have happened. But the meals shared with others were the meals that seemed to matter the most. The disciples haul their catch to shore, and Jesus invites them to bring some of what they've caught and add it to what he has already provided for them. The gospel tells us that the disciples had caught 153 fish. Why 153? Who the heck knows? Scholars have pondered that specificity of number for centuries. Whatever the number is supposed to mean, it is a lot of fish. And it is oddly specific. My friend Jenny McDevitt points out, like 103 fish is a lot of fish, and it's an oddly specific number of fish, so is Jesus' love. It is a lot, and it is specific. The conversation with Peter that follows is even more specific and powerful. Three times, Jesus asked Peter to confess his love. And we remember that the last time Peter was gathered around a fire was at the high priest's courtyard, when he denied Jesus three times. Jesus, in this scene, offers Peter what many modern psychologists would say every one of us needs, a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. We all need to feel accepted by a larger group in order to have a healthy identity and sense of self. David Lowe explains that this idea goes against what may seem like common sense. Our culture regularly argues that identity is an individual affair, something we carve out for ourselves. But the gift of identity is shaped by those around us, for we see ourselves through the eyes of those closest to us. And this is different from fitting in. Fitting in is changing yourself to be acceptable to others. Belonging is being found acceptable by your group, just as you are. Jesus asked Peter three times whether he loves him. Imagine someone you loved asking you three times if you loved him. Peter is hurt by this repetition. But Jesus is not testing Peter. He is reinstating him by allowing him to confess his faith the same number of times he's denied it. He's also giving Peter a purpose. Do you love me? He asks. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep, Jesus says. Be a leader. Look out for others. Belong and devote yourself to my community. Each time Peter and the other disciples shared a meal with Jesus, they learned something new about him. Somehow, 
Each time we come to this table, we learn something new about him. The Episcopal Bishop Michael Curry shares a story. In the 1940s, a young black woman invited her boyfriend to join her one Sunday at her Episcopal church, and he was hesitant. He was also black and knew that his girlfriend's congregation was mostly white. This can be an uncomfortable dynamic in the 21st century. Seventy years ago, it could have been downright dangerous. When it came time for communion, the woman's boyfriend noticed that everyone drank from the same chalice. People who were not allowed to share the same drinking fountains in public were using the same cup to drink the wine. Nervously, he followed his girlfriend to the rail and watched as she took the bread. Muscle memory. The priest lowered the chalice to her lips and said the familiar words, The blood of Jesus Christ shed for thee. This is a story about Bishop Curry's parents and about how his father shifted direction from training to become a Baptist minister to becoming an Episcopalian one. Bishop Curry says, Communion is a sacrament of unity that overcomes even the deepest estrangement between human beings. History tells me that there have been, but I've never known, a season in American history where we have been so divided. We witness in our world deep estrangements because of things like political beliefs and socioeconomic status, because of the ways we experience the world due to our race, our religious creed, our gender identity, our sexual orientation. We need a way to bridge the gaps between us. Until we find unity among ourselves, it is hard for us to find unity with God. Maybe it starts as a meal. Maybe it starts at a table where we are reminded that all are welcome, that there is room for everyone. We remember that every time Jesus shares a meal with others, he reveals something more of who he is and who he loves. Each of us is made in the image of God. Each of us is claimed by Christ. We belong. We have a purpose. In the days following the resurrection, Jesus doesn't waste a moment on revenge or retribution. He doesn't storm Pilate's house. He doesn't avenge himself on Rome or punish the soldiers who drove the nails into his flesh. Instead, he spends his time feeding, restoring, and strengthening. His focus is on relationship reconciliation, and love. He chooses to wait in the wee hours of the morning for a fishing boat, to build a fire, to share a meal. He chooses humility. What would this world look like if we chose to feed and tend like that? In a few moments, you will be invited to take and eat the bread and the cup from our table as it is passed on your pew. You will be invited, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have done this a thousand times and you who has never. Author Diana Butler Bass has taught me that the same Greek word we use to translate take, as in take and eat, also means to receive. Labate, Jesus said, receive and feast. This meal is a gift. It is not a chore or an obligation. It is not a duty or a discipline. It is a gift, like breakfast on a beach where Peter has the weight of his guilt absolved, 
where the disciples bring their 153 fish to shore. At this table, in the quiet of this place, in the middle of a chaotic world that insists nothing is for free, we are given a gift. We receive, and we bring a little bit of ourselves too, just as we are. For it's in moments of abundance like this that we see the depth of God's great love. Friends, receive the bread and the cup, real and tangible reminders of Jesus' incredible, intangible grace. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.